going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, if you will, this morning. As we look at our final message in this series, Generations Following, this one is entitled, All In for the Generations Following. All In for the Generations Following. You know, history has been changed because of people who have been willing to cross over. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in his march toward Rome, the direction of Roman history turned from republic to empire. In Acts chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul crossed over to Macedonia from Asia, the direction of Christianity moved west rather than east. And on June 6, 1944, when the Allied invasion force crossed the English Channel and landed on the beaches at Normandy, the most decisive invasion in history saved Western civilization on D-Day. Church has also come to crossover moments. We've come to such a moment ourselves this morning. The life and destiny of every congregation come down to a few crucial, critical crossing opportunities. Some churches choose to move forward with faith in God and they know a glorious future. Other churches retreat in fear and they know a decades of depressing decline. Our church has now come once again. As we did in 2004, we've once again come to one of those crossover opportunities in our history. And my question for each of us this morning on this commitment day is, will you be all in for the generations following? Will you be all in for the generations following? We spent the entire month of March, as we've been looking together, this entire month of March we've spent together motivating our church family to raise the necessary funds to build a new student and young adult building. Campaign involved a number of months of planning. Many members of our church family, scores of people have made personal sacrifices of their time to make this campaign possible. And on behalf of our church family, I want to say thank you to Stephen Bacon as our overall chairperson of this campaign. I want to say thank you to Kim Wall, who's been our fundraising chairperson and is always doing a great job at that. Carson Self. We owe our thanks to. What you have in drawings here is the result of Carson Self and his team working tirelessly, visiting other student young adult buildings throughout our state to take a look at what we needed to design into our own. I want to say thank you to Joe Andrews, who is in charge of our prayer team and kept prayer ever before us. Ryle Seam, who is responsible for our construction team. His work is just getting started, okay? But Ryle's going to do a great job. And, of course, last but not least, thank you so very much to Mark Smith. Uh, Mark, of course, his work also is just kind of getting started. But he's in charge of our finance team, and we thank him for being a part of that. I want to say a a big thank you to all of those people and to all those folks who helped them. This has been a, a campaign that's taken scores and scores and scores of people to make it work. And now we reach that destiny determining moment in our history this morning. But before we go to such serious things, I thought we might talk about ten misconceptions about our generation's following campaign. Ten misconceptions. Now, you know what a misconception is, don't you? A misconception means it's not true, right? It's not true. So don't walk out of here saying, I said these things were true. I didn't say these things were true. These are misconceptions. Meaning they're not true. Misconception number one, if we don't receive commitments of $2.1 million or more today on our Commitment Sunday, then we won't be building a new student young adult building. That is not true. That is not true. A couple of people have gotten that in their heads. That's not true. 
We'd love to raise $2.1 million in commitments today. I don't think we're going to raise that in cash today. But we'd love to raise that in commitments today. But our consultant, Mark Brooks, told us if we raise $1 to $1.5 million, it'll be celebration time. Because that's what a church our size typically does. Now, we don't want to be just typical. We'd love to rise above typicality. Is that a word? It is now. It is now. Yeah, that's right. We'd love to rise above typicality. All right? But, uh, hey, we're going to try. We're going to do our very best. But if we don't raise the $2.1 million in the first three years, friend, all it's going to mean is that we'll be a little bit later breaking ground. That's all it means. We'll still build the building. It's number two misconception. We will not begin building our new student young adult building until we receive the $2.1 million necessary to receive it. That's not true either. We've been saying all along, when we get to $1,050,000 in cash, half of what we need to build this building, we will begin to break ground and we'll begin to build. Number three, misconception. The new student young adult building will only serve students and young adults. That's not true either. Though it will primarily serve students and young adults, it will also serve other groups of our church and will likely be the location of this service, this contemporary service, sometime in the future. And then again, there is misconception number four. The blue spot on the architect's drawing of our new student young adult building is an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I've loved that one. There it is right there. That's what people think we're going to have, okay? Now, don't go, don't go home and tell them it's going to be a big swimming pool. I put that in there. Knowing my fascinating computer skills, I actually put the water in there. And so, no, it, it does, the water doesn't go there, okay? That's not true. I'm just having fun with you. Misconception number five. Everyone is expected to commit the same amount of money to our generation's following campaign. Said all along, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. Been saying that for months now. Number six. We are encouraged to take money that we regularly give to our budget and give it to the generations following campaign. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I know you're excited about the campaign, but folks, you know, think about it for just a minute. We, if you do that, we may build the building, but we won't have money to pay staff or utility bills or to fund ministries. We will win the battle, but we will lose the war. Please don't do that. Let me say a word about regular giving to you right now because... You know, when I talk to the 8.30 folks and the 11 o'clock folks, most of those folks are older. They're established in their giving habits. Many of you are younger and not yet established in your giving habits. Let me encourage you to give regularly. Let me encourage you to give regularly to the budget. You say, how much? Well, the Bible says a tenth. I didn't say that. The Bible did. The Bible says a tenth. A tithe is what it says. You say, I can't do that. You don't know what you can do yet. I guarantee you that with God, you can do that. You may have to change some things. You may not be able to spend money as easily or quickly as you're spending it right now. But I promise you, you can do that because God would not tell you to do something you cannot do. Amen? So you can do that. It may just take some planning and some work. It did for my wife and myself. If we took a survey of all of those of you in here who tithe regularly, you would tell us the same thing. It took some planning and some work to be able to do that. But it was important enough to you to obey God to do the planning and work and begin to give regularly the way that God tells us to give. So let me encourage you to start doing that. You may not be able to start with a tithe, but start where you are and work toward a tithe. And those of you that are tithing, we need money. (laughs) We need money for this campaign. 
So I'm, we're asking you to give an offering above and beyond the tithe. Number seven. When we fill out a commitment card today, we'll be expected to give today all the money that we commit on that card. Of course, that's not true. Okay? You don't have that money today, and I don't have my money today either. So it's going to take a while. For most of us, this is a three-year commitment. We're going to give over a three-year period. We're going to give it as we make it. Okay? That's what's going to happen for most of us. You're going to have some surprises financially in the next three years. I'm going to have some surprises financially in the next three years. Hopefully, they're good surprises. Sometimes they're not so good, but hopefully they're good. And when you run into some of those good ones, it actually helps you to fulfill a commitment that you make today by faith. You're saying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I believe you're going to help me do this. And you've got three years, Lord, to help me do this. And I trust you. I believe you're going to do this. Number eight. The only way that we can give to the Generations Following Campaign is by making monetary gifts. That's not true, of course. Most people will give by cash or check. Some will opt, particularly in this service, with bank drafts or electronic giving. Some may give stocks and bonds. Some may give real estate. We've already had one family that's given us a gift in kind, which refers to a non-monetary gift that has some monetary value. So there are all kinds of ways to give. Number nine. The commitments we make on commitment day cannot be altered if our financial circumstances change. We've been saying all along, the commitment that you're going to make today is a good faith commitment. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, locally, or nationally, or globally. You don't know what's going to happen in your family, economically, or medically, or vocationally. We can't know the future. What you do today is say, Lord, what do you want me to give? I'm trusting in you to help me give that. Dear friend, if it needs to change, then change it. If things don't go as well as the next three years that you thought they were, then you can decrease your commitment. But let me share with you something novel. What if things go better for you in the next three years than you thought they were? Have you ever thought about increasing it? That's what I'm praying for, for things to go better and us to actually do better than we pledge. And then finally, number 10, the church will be hiring a collection agency to visit any families or individuals who are delinquent in paying their commitments. We've spoken to Guido, and Guido says he'd be be more happy to help us on a... uh, on, a, on a, a basis of giving him a little bit of the cash uh, along the way. Of course, we just wanted to have some fun with you. With those misconceptions corrected, let's look at our message from the biblical text dealing with Israel's crossing over into the promised land this morning. We begin by seeing that as was true for the Israelites so long ago, so it is true for us today. Number one, the perils of turning back compel our commitment to cross over today. The perils of turning back compel our commitment to cross over today. The journey from their enslavement in Egypt to the promised land should have taken the Israelites only 40 days. You recall it took them 40 years. And as as Israel prepared to cross over into Canaan early on in that 40-year period, Numbers chapter 13 verses 1 through 2 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man 
everyone a leader among them. And when the twelve spies returned from surveying the land, notice what the text says in Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us to, and it does flow with milk and honey, and here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, you remember Caleb, he's one of the good guys. Then Caleb, of course, silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. There's a guy who believed. There's a guy who had faith. We can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size, very tall. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Because of that bad report given by ten of the twelve spies, the people rebelled against God. And we see that rebellion in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us up to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Notice that when God's people refuse to go forward, there's only one direction left to go. And that's backwards. And they decided, let's go back to Egypt. Remember the good old days in Egypt when they whipped us every day? Remember the good old days in Egypt when we starved to death? Those were good old days, weren't they? Let's go back there to those good old days. That's what happens When a church refuses to go forward into freedom, we go backward into some kind of slavery. What happened, of course, in the aftermath of the Israelites' refusal to cross over, that generation forever lost their opportunity. That generation doesn't get another opportunity to go into the promised land. Their children do, but they don't. What happens if we, like the children of Israel, refuse to cross over today? Back in 2004, during our Journey of Faith campaign, I had a very influential member of this church ask me a question. He said, Pastor, uh, this campaign places you in a critical career position, doesn't it? What will you do? What will it mean to our church if our church decides not to do this campaign? And I said, well, I, I suppose that when you refuse to go forward, there's only one direction left to go. You go backwards. I guess it means we're going to have to go backwards for a while. Fortunately, our church refused to retreat from God's vision for our future, and we crossed over 15 years ago. The question is, will we cross over again today? Will they have that very same, very similar opportunity before us this morning? Will we cross over today? Suzanne and I faced the challenge of crossing over in our lives back in 1981. Both teaching school in Cobb County, been married for less than a year, The Lord has been speaking to me since before I even became a Christian about one day being a minister. It's odd, I know, but He did. And I'd sensed that call in my life for a long time. But we began to 
to think about what we needed to do is that call became increasingly stronger in the spring of 1981. Suzanne and I decided to go out to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas and look things over. She had a former youth minister that was in school out there. We could stay with him and his family. One morning during my devotional time on that visit, the Lord spoke to me in an unusual way. This doesn't happen every day for me. Doesn't happen every week for me. Doesn't happen every month for me. But every once in a while it happens. When God speaks to me so plainly through His Word, it is unmistakable. It's not my imagination. It's not that pepperoni pizza I had for supper the night before. God is speaking to me in a most unusual way through His Word, and I know it is the Lord. And, and as, as I began to, to understand that we needed to make this journey, we needed to pull up roots where we were in Cobb County and leave secure jobs in teaching. I did not say financially profitable jobs in teaching, but secure jobs in teaching. And we needed to head out to Fort Worth where we had no family. We needed to go there and do what God wanted us to do. As we began to think about that, of course, Satan began to work with me in the reasons we couldn't and shouldn't do that. He told me, you know, you're not making all that much money. <laughs> he said to us, that's a long way away from family. You don't have any family out there. He said, you still got some debt that you need to pay back. Still, I knew that God was saying that we needed to go. And as Satan bombarded my mind with those excuses, suddenly a verse that I'd not really appreciated before, Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 38 and 39 came to me. It says, now the just shall live by faith. That's what God was saying to me. That's what God is saying to us this morning. You're going to make this commitment today by faith. The just shall live by faith, it says. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in them. But we are not of those who turn back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We're not going to turn back when we believe God is telling us to go forward. That was God's word for Sudan myself. It was needed for us as we crossed over. We soon left Georgia, went to Texas. And I believe that if I had not obeyed God in that moment in my life, sitting in that apartment in Fort Worth, Texas, before we ever moved there, I believe that if I had not obeyed God in that moment, we would have never had another chance to go. That was it. That was the crossover moment for me. And you've got a crossover moment for you this morning. Our church has a crossover moment for it this morning. Which way will we go? The perils of turning back compel us to commit to cross over today. Secondly, the leading of God's Spirit guides our commitment to cross over today. The twelve spies, of course, saw discouraging things in the promised land. Large cities, well fortified. They saw giants there. They must have had a good basketball team, right? Many of them were... That was supposed to be funny, but, uh, you know... I worked on that for about an hour this week. It didn't go the way I thought it would. But anyhow... Giants in the land. They're scared of them. In the book of Joshua, the generations of Israelites that had refused to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land in the book of Numbers had died off now. And now their children, their children had the opportunity to cross over into the Promised Land. Compare the difference in attitude between the two spies who come back and report to Joshua. The difference between them and the ten spies who gave the bad report to Moses. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, it says, Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua the son of Nun, told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. 
God is preparing the way for us to cross this Jordan today. Notice the direction that God gave to His people as they were crossing over. In chapter 3 of the book of Joshua, verses 1 through 4, I believe it is. It says, Early in the morning Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark and do not go near it. The Ark of the Covenant stood for God's presence and His direction among His people. We no longer follow a gold-encrusted box as the emblem of God's presence. We now have the objective Word of God. We have the Bible as God's guidance for our lives. And we have His Holy Spirit. The Spirit that lived at the Ark is the Spirit that lives in our hearts today. And we have God's Spirit in our lives to guide us and to correct us and to show us the way. You know... I never thought about this till this week. We would have never scheduled our three-year journey of faith campaign of 2004 through 2007 had we known that there was coming a housing bust in 2008 that would lead this country into what's come to be called the Great Recession. Not the Great Depression, but the Great Recession. We would have conducted that fundraising campaign, if we had known that that was coming, we never would have done it. Humanly speaking, everyone would have told us, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. There's coming bad financial times. You'll never raise the money that you need. We would have never done it. Fortunately, our ignorance was bliss. We went ahead and did it. We didn't know what was coming. And you know the incredible thing about that? Is that the average yearly income for those five years, just before and just after 2008... Our average church income was $1,160,293. It was, for five years, $360,000 more each year than the average had been before we started that campaign. Incredible. God was faithful to us in bad times because we were faithful to Him. And that's how it works. We need to be faithful to Him. Number three. The season of prayerful consecration fuels our commitment to cross over today. The season of prayerful consecration fuels our commitment to cross over today. Commitments that we're making in this campaign have been forming in some of our hearts for months, in other of our hearts for weeks. Generations following campaign has been a season of prayerful consecration. I want to thank Joe Andrews and his prayer team for keeping prayer before us throughout this campaign. We now come to a moment. That as individual Christians, as collective families, as a church family, we have been preparing for through this consecration. You know, Joshua chapter 3 verse 5 tells us that Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. The Hebrew people consecrated themselves in various ways. They ceremonially bathed. They gave up certain activities. They meditated on God's Word. We too have been through a season of prayerful consecration. We've deepened our spiritual roots. We've prayed to know God's will. We've listened to God's voice as we've asked Him the question, Lord, what do you want to do through me for this campaign? It's been a time of preparation. It began quietly. 
inwardly among our leadership. It's grown outwardly and obviously to include every age and stage of life in our church. We have organized, prayed, testified, met, mailed, taught, and preached. Yet everything that we have done thus far has been prelude. It's all been just anticipation. Today is the day to cross over. Future generations will look back at this moment as a crucial time in our lives in terms of what we're doing. And it's important for us to make those decisions and to do what God wants us to do today. So let's talk this morning as we think about where God wants us to be and where God wants us to go. Let's talk this morning about this last concept. And as I do so, let me mention one other thing. I had a conversation with Stephen Bacon, our general chairperson, this past week on Wednesday night. We were just walking down the hall together and he shared what... He and his wife Jennifer and their children, Sidney and Andrew, that every night they had set their alarm clock for 8.59 so that it would ring and they would know that they needed to pray for this campaign at 9 o'clock. And they did that faithfully and God blessed them in that. And as they, as they did that, they began to say, or Steve began to say to me, God did such a work in our hearts and lives and we've had some great stuff like that in this campaign. The prayer time has been very special. The little devotional book has been special. Have you read that? There's some good stuff in there. I'm thinking about stealing some of it myself. There's some good stuff in there. Some really good illustrations. I've even read up a little bit ahead last night. And man, I I, I wish I'd used some of those illustrations before. They're good. It's good material. We've tried to prepare your hearts for this day. And what you're going to do today. Lastly. Number four. The faith to step forward seals our commitment to cross over today. The faith to step forward seals our commitment to cross over today. Joshua chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 says, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. Piled up in a heap. A great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The Israelites could no longer evade, avoid, step over, or step around the commitment they had made. It was time for them to cross over. The Jordan was at flood tide, we're told, in that text. The highest point that it is all year long. Now, the Hebrew people were a desert-bound slave people. They were not a seafaring people. They were a sea-fearing people. They never had a navy. They were afraid of water. Like throwing a cat into a bathtub. I've never done that, but I've heard it works. Okay? Cats, they don't even touch the water. They're out before they even touch the water. They hate water that much. And that was like the Hebrew people. They despised water. It was not until the priests carrying the ark of God stepped into the Jordan River in personal faith. Notice those words. Personal faith did the waters roll back and the people cross the rivers on dry ground. After weeks of preparation, we stand on the brink of our own Jordan River. Our congregation has been on a journey of preparation. And God has been working in us this journey. Future generations will look back at this moment as a crucial moment in the life and history of our church. Those who come after us will look on what we did here today and they will either commend our faith or they will condemn our fear. Sacrificial pledge commitments that we now prepare to make 
will forever mark us as a people either of vision and sacrifice or a people who chose the way of cowardly convenience. We're here today because somebody came before us and prepared this place for us. Now it's time for us to do the same. It's time to cross over. We need at least a million dollars in commitments on a three-year basis in this campaign. I want to let you know that we've already received $455,000 in the bank for this campaign. Some of it's come through our budget. Most of it's come through giving that was done in advance. I want you to know that 23 of our families have given an advance commitment in terms of their pledge. And their total advance commitments are almost $300,000. And yet today, most of our families will be making their commitments right now, this morning. So when it comes to this commitment, I want you to take that commitment card that's in the pew in front of you that looks like this. Open it up, if you will. You'll see inside that commitment card. Hopefully you've looked at it before. But if you haven't, I can give you a little instruction. The page that you're looking to uh, look at and pay attention to this morning is this generation's commitment, generations following commitment card right here. If you've already made, if you're one of those 23 families, and you've already made an advanced commitment to this campaign, all we want you to do is simply sign your name at the bottom of the commitment card and then put A slash C at the top. It doesn't stand for air conditioning. It stands for advanced commitment. If you've already made an advanced commitment, just put AC at the top. Because we want you, as an advanced commitment person, to participate in our invitation in just a few moments. So you'll have a card to bring down. For the rest of it, I know that you put a lot of thought and prayer into this commitment. You've decided by now whether you're going to give your commitment on a weekly or a monthly or a yearly basis. You'll need to add up that total of what you're doing by three year, and make it a three-year total. Indicate, of course, perhaps when you might begin that total. Sign your card, if you will. Tear it away from the folder if you'd like to. You can leave it on if you'd like to. That's up to you. And then place it back in the envelope, if you will. And seal that envelope. Several people have asked me when they should begin giving. That's totally up to you, but we are having a First Fruit Sunday in a couple of weeks on Palm Sunday, April 14th. Do you know the, do you know the, the background of, of First Fruits? First Fruits was a, a holiday the Hebrews celebrated in the Old Testament. It was, of course, the celebration of the harvest in Israel. And the high priest took the first good sheaf of the harvest, he brought it into the temple, he waved it before the curtain that separated the holy portion of the temple from the holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God was. And he waved that sheaf in pledge and promise that the rest of the harvest would be as good as that first sheaf. And First Fruit Sunday simply means this is our first big offering toward this campaign. And our prayer is that God would bless the rest of this campaign, that the rest of it is as good as the first fruit, the first Sunday that we give. That God would bless that. In just a moment, our instrumentalists are going to play. We're going to ask each family to bring their commitment card forward and place it in the big green box right here on the communion table. It's appropriate that we place it on the communion table because the communion table represents what Jesus Christ did in sacrifice for us. And the green box 
represents what you're going to do in sacrifice for him and for your church and for the generations following. Give you just a moment to finish up those cards. Our typical invitation has been foregone this morning. And our invitation is simply going to be for you as a family to come forward and to place your commitment cards in the green box. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to to give a little bit back for all that you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to be generous today. As we make these commitments, we make them in good faith, trusting you to help us fulfill them. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.